So therefore, when you're in life, you can't gamble that you personally are going to be enabled to create the action which is necessary for mankind. What you have to concern yourself with is what it is you must commit yourself to and with what form and what, what cap capability. And so, so they throw me into prison, so what? It can happen to anyone in almost any country, things like that. But the key thing is don't give in, don't collapse, fight, but learn how to fight intelligently and to a to proper mission. Fighting for yourself is sometimes the most foolish thing you can do because you can accomplish more by taking the same power and using it for other purposes. And that's my situation. Look, I'm 91 years of age. That's not exactly a ripe youth, you know what you say? But therefore, I, my purpose in life is based on what I can help to create to happen. And all wise people who have really become wise don't depend upon their own life as such. They depend upon what their life in process can contribute to mankind. And I think that's the truth of mankind. And it's the truth that mankind must find in themselves. Otherwise, they will lack the strength to deal with the great menaces which can hit humanity and, and have before. And that's my view. You have to take leadership to affect what is necessary for mankind. And once you deviate from that ob objective, particularly in a conflict that I've gone through, you lose. You lose because you threw yourself away. The mission is that you're going to die anyway, but you want to accomplish something by having lived. And that's what you must fight for. Because when people start to fight only for themselves, of how can I solve my problem, they lose. It's when they find themselves in solidarity with other people to bring about a common end for the benefit of mankind. Then you become a powerful force. That's what I believe, that's what I do, that's the way I act. Welcome to today's Manhattan Project Town Meeting of the LaRouche Organization. You've just heard Lyndon LaRouche from 2013 uh, speaking uh, to an audience that had been assembled for a particular gubernatorial campaign of Diane Sayre. Uh, today is our second show in this year, uh, and we are going to go right into the topic. There are so many different crises that we are confronted with, uh, and we're going to hear first from uh, Harley Schlanger, uh, LaRouche spokesman, and then after that, we're going to Mike Robinson, who's also with us from UK, to get uh, the real lowdown. We wanted to have Mike actually on the first of the year because we wouldn't want to start uh, the year without identifying the, the, the real nature of Perfidious Albion, but he managed to make it for this week weekend, so... Uh, we'll go first to Harley, and then we'll go right to Mike. Okay, thank you, Dennis, and hello, everyone. Uh, look, we're in the, the midst of, of one of these periods where sometime in the future, if we make it, we can look back and say that these were the months and, and weeks where it was determined whether we, mankind would survive. The drive for war continues at an accelerating rate. But there have been some changes or some things that are factoring in that could change that. It was about 10 days ago that a, an unnamed anonymous source, probably Jake Sullivan, the director of national intelligence or someone on that level, 
warned that we have about four weeks before Russia would invade Ukraine. And that's a period of time in which something has to change. And, and of course, Sullivan, Blinken, and various spokesmen for the uh, Warhawk faction were saying Russia had to withdraw troops. Withdraw troops from what? From Russia? Because that's where the Russian troops were. They were saying that it's the Russian threat, the Russians are poised to act, and that therefore something has to change, and that all of NATO, all of the allies are strongly united. And if Russia does act, does invade Ukraine, uh, well, it is unlikely that the NATO forces would engage Russia in a war. It's possible it could happen by accident. But even though it's unlikely, they promised that if Russia did invade, there would be painful sanctions, crippling uh, measures against the Russian elites, possibly Russia kicked out of the SWIFT system, the financial transaction system, and so on. So the question now is, what will the U.S. do? Because the Russians have been clear. Uh, Putin, the defense minister Shoigu, uh, foreign minister Lavrov have all said repeatedly that the demands Russia is making for new treaties between the United States and Russia and NATO and Russia must be uh, turned into legally binding written documents, signed documents, with two major points. One is no eastward expansion of NATO, to, and that means no Ukraine membership or Georgia membership. And secondly, no deployment of lethal weapons system, systems inside Ukraine. And the Russians have said this is non-negotiable. This was promised in 1990, uh, not in writing, but promised in several different meetings. And instead, NATO has continued to incorporate former Soviet republics, uh, former members of the Warsaw Pact, uh, and moved closer and closer, a thousand kilometers closer to the Russian borders, and is engaging in naval maneuvers routinely in the Black Sea, uh, air flights that go to the edge of Russian airspace, uh, military maneuvers in, in all of the new NATO countries. And so the Russians are saying, this is a national security threat to Russia. That's what the US keeps saying. And it came up again uh, yesterday at the NATO foreign minister's uh, virtual meeting where Blinken came out afterwards and said, they will pay a high price if they invade Ukraine. And he said, if they invade Ukraine again, and this has been the line coming from these war hawks that Russia did invade Ukraine after 2014, which is simply not true. But they figure if they say it enough, people will believe it. Now, the other thing they're saying, the, the line coming from this crew is, we won't back down. Russia's demands are unacceptable. Russia has no right to dictate what NATO policy should be. Some even say this is blackmail, that Putin is putting troops on the border as a threat to try to impose his will. Now, Biden has been a little bit different on this. Biden, in fact, made it clear in, in two discussions with uh, Putin on December 7th and then again on December 30th that he was open to discussion. He said the United States is not going to let Russia dictate NATO policy, and the United States will not accept Russia's red lines because Putin said Ukraine and NATO is a red line. But Biden also said that he would that these negotiations offer an opportunity for some kind of accommodation 
for a de-escalation. Now, uh, I, I did an interview in the last couple of days with a very prominent Russian analyst, uh, Dr. Andrei Kortinov, who made a very interesting point, which is he said that, well, look, these, the, the, there actually is a negotiation underway, and the Russians are sending signals. The question is whether those signals will be properly interpreted. And, and you can go see that interview. Uh, it's available on the Schiller Institute website. Now, there is one thing we do know. We don't know exactly what the U.S. policy will be. We know what uh, Blinken and, and uh, Liz Truss, the British foreign minister, are saying, what Stoltenberg, the head of NATO, is saying. They're very insistent that they think there will be an invasion and there will be a very strong reaction. In fact, some of them even imply it might be a military reaction. But one thing we do know is there's a lot of nervousness in the Warhawk faction about what might actually happen, given that on the one hand, they know that there's not really a viable military option in Ukraine. In fact, at the beginning of this year, the permanent five members of the UN Security Council put out a statement saying that nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought, which was the formulation presented in 1986 by Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. So the idea of fighting a nuclear war, well, you know, they, they can say there's no, that it won't happen. There's always the problem of an accident, but there are some who realize that the military strategic situation is not favorable for the United States in Ukraine, just as they also recognize that the situation with Taiwan and China, that the U.S. really has limited military capabilities if, in fact, China would invade Taiwan, which I think it's unlikely that China has any intention to do that. But we do know that there's a fear, a fear that the Russians and the Chinese have outflanked the transatlantic countries. And this was presented in an article in the Wall Street Journal this last week. Several different people involved in homeland security made a similar statement. They said, look, the Russia-China relationship is very worrying. This shifts the military balance. And they went so far as to say that maybe the United States should be less hard on Russia to try and pull Russia away from China. And it shows one thing, which is that geopolitical thinking clouds their judgment, because in their minds, the only basis of a Russia-China uh, agreement, coalition or alliance, would be military, ignoring completely the real impetus behind a Russia-China relationship, which is Eurasian economic integration. So the geopoliticians have to come up with another option. And I think we saw that unfolding at the end of this or the, the beginning of this week in Kazakhstan. Now, we're still doing an investigation because there's a lot to look at on this. But there are a couple of things that are evident from the start. The uprising or the rioting, we should say, in Kazakhstan uh, was planned in advance. It had outside intervention. And the, some of this comes from the, the uh, reports on, well, I, I'll get to that in a moment, who the, the person who's claiming credit for this. But here's something to take into consideration. 
In 2019, the RAND Corporation, which is a major part of the military industrial complex, put out a report called Extending Russia, competing from advantageous ground. And what they said is that the United States must act in a way to unbalance the adversary, cause Russia to overextend itself militarily or economically, and this would cause them to lose domestic and international prestige. Now, this is based on the game plan from the 1980s, which is that confronted by Ronald Reagan with the offer for sharing the strategic defense initiative, the Russians backed away because they didn't think they could compete with the United States militarily and economically, and they were afraid to divert away from the military buildup that was underway, which ultimately led, as Lyndon LaRouche forecast, to the collapse of the Soviet Union. But they're saying it again, let's get Russia to overextend itself. And they offered a six-point plan. First one, lethal aid to Ukraine. Use Ukraine as a battleship against Russia, as a destabilizing influence on Russia. Two, increase support to Syrian rebels. Now, this shows what we have said all along, that the U.S. strategy in Syria was to overthrow the government of uh, Assad using support to what ultimately was ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Uh, three, promote regime change in Belarus. This is underway. Uh, not successful so far, but it's continuing. Four, exploit tensions in the South Caucasus. And that in particular would mean Armenia and Azerbaijan. They had a brief uh, confrontation, a, a shooting war not that long ago. It's still very unstable there, and they see that as a lever they can use against Russia. And their fifth point is reduce Russian influence in Central Asia. Now, the most important of these countries in Central Asia is Kazakhstan. It's part of the uh, alliance, the CSTO, the uh, uh, military security alliance that exists there. And the destabilization, it's also where the Russian space uh, launch pad is uh, in uh, Baikonur. And the, it, it's a relatively important oil producing center. But it's also a, a country that has its economic problems. It has certain people who are disgruntled. It's not a fully unified country. Uh, the previous government was somewhat of an oligarchical government. But what happened was the prices of liquid uh, petroleum doubled overnight. And this was used to bring disgruntled people who were legitimately disgruntled into the streets. Now, the Rand Corporation report uh, goes on to say that the, there should be, like, that Kazakhstan should be pulled out of the Eurasian Economic Union. And that was one of the demands that were coming from the protesters. Now, just a quick note on RAND. RAND was set up in 1948 as a so-called research and development. That's what RAND stands for, Research and Development Agency. That would be a private sector operation that would be working to shape U.S. government policies, especially with research and development, and then applying those research and development to military and other capabilities. Uh, Two-thirds of its funding, though, comes from U.S. government agencies. 
uh, with large amounts from the Department of Defense, national security agencies. In 2020, they provided 64 million to RAND, the U.S. Army, 36 million, the Air Force, 47 million, Homeland Security, 46 million, and the Health and Human Services, 68 million. So two-thirds of the budget of RAND, when they're putting out these reports, comes from U.S. government agencies. But a lot of the impetus for it comes from private sector, the, the corporate cartels, the defense corporations, and what really is the other side of the military industrial complex. It was from RAND that the original doctrine of mutual and assured destruction was, was developed. Uh, the person who ran the team then was that then Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, who deployed Herman Kahn, who wrote a book called On Thermonuclear War, and who is one of the uh, figures who was satirized in the book, Doctor, or the movie, Dr. Strangelove. But other consultants for RAND included people who were part of the uh, Anglo-American intelligence operation, including John von Neumann, who was a board member. Actually, von Neumann wasn't a board member, he was a consultant. Kenneth Arrow, who was very much involved in game theory. And Rand was developing military strategy back in the 60s based on game theory. These were the so-called whiz kids of McNamara. So just keep that in mind when we're looking at this situation, that Rand, which is a perfect example of the military industrial complex, was promoting the idea of using Kazakhstan as an operation to destabilize Russia because they knew that the Russians would be forced to come in to help out uh, solidify the situation in Kazakhstan. The looters and rioters were burning government buildings, took over the airport at Almaty, and the president of Kazakhstan has identified uh, two different groups in, in this, this operation. He said these are foreign actors including terrorists. And it's very probable that they have quite a bit of uh, information on ISIS and Al-Qaeda networks uh, that were moved from Syria into Kazakhstan. This is all under investigation. But also just bandits, thugs. 18 security forces were killed in the big day of, of rioting last week. So this was not just a bunch of democracy protesters uh, it does have very strong resemblance to the color revolutions that were launched uh, in Ukraine, uh, in Georgia, and elsewhere. And interestingly, the person who is taking credit for this, Abliazov, is uh, a former energy secretary, a banker, fled the country, I think, in 2004. And where did he go? He went to London. He's now operating out of Paris, but his political party is based in Kiev. So you put that all together and you see the, the, the elements of the Soros, the non-governmental organizations. Uh, I'm sure the U.S. is playing a role in this because the idea of destabilizing Kazakhstan, as at the same time you have the Ukraine crisis, is to force the Russians to have to divert resources and attention from these meetings coming up, the U.S.-Russian security uh, stability dialogue, uh, strategic stability dialogue on the 10th, the Russian-NATO Council on the 12th of January, 
and the OSCE meeting on the 13th, with the possibility that there could be improvements toward de-escalating the situation in Ukraine. The ideal time to launch a further destabilization on Russia's largest border. Now, let me just give you a little bit more on this. Uh, it's Reuters that ran an interview with Ablyazov, who claims to be the leader of the Kazakh rebellion. Uh, and in it, they, Reuters promoted him as the leader. Then you have the economist on January 8th, the city of London mouthpiece, uh, having an article, How to Talk to Mr. Putin. And what it concludes is that Putin is making demands that are, quote, so extravagant and so detrimental to Europe's security that they may really be an ultimatum drafted to be rejected to create a pretext for another invasion of Ukraine. So again, they have this formulation, uh, another invasion of Ukraine, but basically saying that Putin is setting up the circumstances where Russia will be able to claim that they're invading Ukraine uh, because of the rejection of their security demands. So that's what The Economist says. Uh, and The Economist concludes that uh, the West has to remain firm and must deter and resist Putin, working together with the, quote, resilient Ukrainians, unquote. Then there's Chatham House, uh, Royal Institute of International Affairs, British Intelligence. They have an article saying that uh, from their Russia Eurasia desk that appeasement will not work. You must not appease Putin. Do not give him his way or Russia will think they can use the threat of force anywhere to get their way. And they, of course, with appeasement are referring back to Chamberlain and his meeting with Hitler, uh, which uh, went a long way towards uh, ensuring that World War II would take place. But they call this a Chamberlain moment. And Chatham House's article concludes by saying, appeasement won't work, deterrence won't work, Russia must be defeated. That's the language in this article. Then you have the UK Foreign Minister Liz Truss, who recently met with Blinken, who's been making very strong statements against Putin. Uh, she came out yesterday in the uh, parliament and said, if Putin invades Ukraine, there will be massive coordinated sanctions that will make it difficult for Russian elites to carry out financial transactions, which is a very direct reference to kicking Russia out of the SWIFT system. Uh, she accused Russia of a bellicose stance toward Ukraine and of using disinformation to gain an upper hand. Now, this was repeated by Blinken after the NATO foreign minister's meeting yesterday, this, this line. Uh, Blinken said, Russia is spreading malign messages via social media, infecting media with disinformation and driving the false narrative that NATO is threatening Russia. And he went on to say, this is Secretary of State Blinken, uh, they want to draw us into a debate about NATO rather than focus on the matter at hand, which is their aggression towards Ukraine. I think it's interesting they say Russia is using social media in the same way they claim Russia used social media to defeat Hillary Clinton in 2016. 
Now, the U.S., of course, does use social media inside Russia, uh, as Mike Robinson can detail. Uh, the Brits are the masters of that. But the, it might also be said that if you have the New York Times, the Washington Post, as well as speakers like Blinken, you don't need social media because they're putting out the line against Russia and against Putin and the lies. So what we're dealing with now is a situation where you have this trigger, uh, the, the Kazakh trigger, which was designed to force Russia to intervene to further discredit the Russians as an aggressive authoritarian force, suppressing democracy and, and their near abroad. Now, it appears as though the situation has calmed somewhat since the troops, uh, it's not a large number of troops, but since outside forces came in, the president of Kazakhstan gave a, an address and he said that we will defend our nation against terrorists and thugs and uh, bandits and people who are committing violent crimes will be shot and killed. So we, we'll see what happens there. Uh, it, it is something to be quite concerned with because these things don't stop. The investments that are made, the money that flows in, remember Victoria Nuland said over, I think, a two-decade period, the U.S. put $5 billion into building the Ukrainian coup, which was completed in February 2014. Uh, no one knows how much Soros is putting into Kazakhstan. There are other private public sector initiatives where, uh, again, Mike Robinson can tell you some of this, how they control the narrative. But the, the fear is that there is a potential to de-escalate in Ukraine. Now, let me just conclude by saying that we have put forward what's necessary for a de-escalation. When you have these kinds of operations, it's not enough just to say, okay, let's talk, let's have a dialogue, let's make a few concessions here and there, because you're not addressing the underlying cause. The underlying cause of all of this is the collapse of the transatlantic system. The fact that the banking system, which is integrally tied to the military industrial complex <clears throat> and to the, the uh, strategic intelligence policy of the Western powers, that system is collapsing. It's uh, collapsing at an accelerating rate with, with inflation, with pandemic disease, which is uh, not being stopped because we don't have the healthcare capabilities because of the privatization and the neoliberal policies that tore down public health and the advanced sector economies. It's the Green New Deal, the fact that we have energy uh, shortages, we have higher priced energy. And as a result, when you add to that, the narratives that create polarization, the identity politics that really literally creates a war of each against all so that people are, are driven to despair trying to make sure they have enough beef jerky and, and bullets and, and gold bullion and, and Viagra in their basement to survive a prolonged civil war. That's the situation politically that we have in, in the United States with, with the, and you can see it around the, the two sides sniping at each other over the January 6th uh, activities. So under these circumstances, how do you find your way out? 
And this is where you can't simply point out how bad your opponents are. You need solutions. And that's why 2022 has been declared by Helga Zepp-LaRouche as the year of Lyndon LaRouche, the 100th anniversary of his birth and a celebration of the ideas, the richness of his interventions to present alternatives, including the alternatives needed to uh, overcome the disastrous collapse of the physical economy, going back to his banking reform proposal, a, a new Glass-Steagall, uh, a Hamiltonian credit bank, investment in new platforms of infrastructure, and investment in research and development at the frontiers of science. This is what should be on the agenda, ultimately, of the dialogue between Western countries and Russia and Western countries and China. This is on the agenda in Russia and China. In the West, what's on the agenda is the Green New Deal and the Great Reset, which, if they are successfully implemented, will create more of an impulse toward war than we already have. So in, in reviewing this situation, uh, it's important to, to know who's responsible and what their, op, what their policies are, but just as important and probably even more so is to look at the solutions, and in particular, the change in culture. You know, it's, it's not enough just to say the other side has bad culture. The whole culture of the Western world is terrible. It, it, if human beings, you know, if monkeys could talk, they'd say, how did human beings descend so low? But that's why the other aspect of the LaRouche year is classical culture. So let me stop at that and see what Mike has to say. Well, we go we, we, before I go to Mike. I just want <clears throat> to check one thing with you, Harley. Now you said that was that was beef jerky, uh, gold bullion, uh, Viagra. Now there was something else essential you had in that list for the survive. I, I just right, you're gonna be publishing it, it that. Could be clean, clean water because you want to. If you have vi enough Viagra, you need to be <laughs> somewhere clean. <laughs> I just want to make sure we, we had that list. For, I think it was bullets. For, I think it was bullets. Bullets. <laughs> bullets. Yeah. yeah, bullets, bullets, bullets. Yeah. That gun would help, I guess. Uh, yeah. Okay, fine. Now, we have, uh, as we go to Mike here, I think people have, are, well, first of all, if you've just joined us, uh, today's Manhattan uh, town meeting is 2022, the year of war and disease or the year of LaRouche. Uh, someone had asked, uh, but when we started the show, whether the, the uh, thumbnail that we show at the beginning, which has a sort of spike virus, was a was a picture of Prince Philip. Uh, no, it wasn't. But uh, that kind of image is appropriate to bring up because when you get to Tony Blair, the former prime minister of uh, Great Britain, there was an event there this past week uh, in which he was uh, knighted uh, uh, the Order of the Garter. And uh, not merely to explain that, uh, but to give us a picture of sort of what the latest is from the center of all world evil uh, over there across the pond. Uh, we have Mike Robinson, who's editor of UK Column. And apart from the, from the uh, levity of it all, there are some matters that we want to call everybody's attention to, particularly in the United States, but also throughout the transatlantic that Mike has kept us abreast of. So, Mike, it's now your show. Okay, well, uh, well, we'll start off with Tony Blair, if that's okay. And uh, and as you mentioned, he has been uh, made 
now companion of the most noble order of the Garter, and uh, the only person who can have uh, uh, awarded that is the Queen herself, because that is uh, in her gift. It's not uh, in. Uh, it's not a government decision. Uh, there's been quite a backlash uh, to the to the announcement, and uh, so I just thought I'd, I'd let you see what the current situation is with the with the petition against this. So we currently have one million fifty three thousand eight hundred and fifty three people have signed, and I just grabbed that uh, that graphic uh, as um, as we as in the first part of the program. So that's uh, just about ten or fifteen minutes ago. That was the level. So it's well over. It's over. A million people, which is uh, is great news. Um, uh, whether that will result in uh, any kind of rescinding of the uh, of the award or not, I think we're uh, agreed on this side of the pond that uh, uh, it would be extremely embarrassing if if for for the establishment if they had to do that. Um, and uh, uh, but it's always nice to see people make their feelings uh, known as far as Tony Blair is concerned. Now, of course, Tony Blair has uh, uh, has been active in in Kazakhstan in recent years, uh, but in fact, British. I'll just mention a couple of things that that Harley was talking about there. Uh, the British have been active in Kazakhstan since the mid nineties, um, and you know, if we're talking about uh, control of narratives and so on, um, one of the things that struck me about what Harley was saying there was was the, the how similar the events, the recent events in Kazakhstan sounded compared to the early days of the, the Syrian conflict as well. And it sounds like, uh, you know, there's another example of, of them running the same script uh, once again. But what happened in Syria then subsequently was that um, the British media um, started promoting uh, very heavily anti-Assad narratives. Um, and in order to promote those anti-Assad narratives, they were pulling out uh, Reports from Syrians, people that were they were describing as Syrians, people that were uh, supposedly uh, involved in politics or involved in the, in the situation uh, uh, in Syria on the ground. Um, but once we started looking more closely at who these people were, we started discovering well, actually, they've been receiving training and so on. And one of the organizations has been active in Kazakhstan, absolutely active in Syria. Many other countries around the world uh, is uh, an organization called BBC Media Action. I've mentioned them uh, on a previous appearance on this program. Um, and uh, what they do is media development in other countries. Another organization very similar is the Thomson Reuters Foundation. And if anybody knows the name Nazanin Zagari Radcliffe, she's currently She's a, a, a British Iranian citizen, dual citizenship. She is currently in prison in Iran, or I think she's allowed a, a, in house arrest at the moment. She's been in prison in Iran um, because they arrested her when she went to visit family uh, on allegations of uh, subverting the state, really. Uh, what was her role? Well, she had previously worked for BBC Media Action. Then, when she was arrested, was working for Thomson Reuters Foundation, and she was uh, one of the people running training courses for journalists in foreign countries, really in British or British and Western style media. So, developed, so in other words, they would present uh, Western narratives in their countries with a view to change. So BBC Media Action absolutely boasted that uh, they were working with opposition groups in Syrian in Syria from. 
2004, 2005, well before the, the Syrian conflict began, uh, in order to see who the opposition was, to help them uh, develop their narratives and so on. But then subsequently, once the uh, conflict began, we started seeing those types of people being uh, used as uh, mouthpieces on the British media with a view to justification of, of the regime change operation and justification of potential military action in Syria. Now, that, of course, didn't happen for many reasons. Those people, uh, and in fact, the Syrian opposition groups themselves, uh, people that uh, are heavily linked to ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and so on, were receiving uh, money from the Foreign Commonwealth, Commonwealth Office under uh, a program called the Conflict, Stability and Security Fund. Uh, and there's a comma between conflict and stability there. So it's conflict, comma, stability and security fund. And, you know, I always, I always thought that was probably a misprint because uh, it seemed to me that as that money was being spent, it was all about stabilizing the conflict and making sure the conflict uh, in these countries continued. Um, and then the other thing Harley said was he was talking about Rand. He said uh, private sector... Rand being a private sector operation operating in countries to, to develop the interests of the United States and so on. Well, well, without question, the likes of BBC Media Action is supported to many millions of pounds per year to do that exactly that kind of thing through their media development program. Uh, and the Foreign Office, in fact, has uh, a, a, a department called the Counter Disinformation and Media Development Program, which is not only doing what I've just described, but is also... Uh, attempting to counter what they describe as, as Russian disinformation, which is being exported from Russia, they claim, uh, into this country and through social media. So there's two, there's two aspects to, the, to the, the attempt to control the narrative. There's the, the attempt to control what they say is a foreign narrative coming into the, into the UK and into the United States, into Europe. But also, equally, there's the attempt to control uh, the narrative that uh, is coming from uh, uh, critic, critics of, of government policy in, in the UK and in Europe and uh, in the US. Um, so uh, I've got a little bit of video here that I just want to show because uh, this was doing the rounds on Thursday and Friday last week on social media and many, many people in the UK very, very surprised to hear the kind of language that was being used. Um, so you're about to see uh, a lady called Nadine Dorries, and she is the uh, Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. And it's the media part that is the key uh, part in that title, because she is responsible for what for the censorship uh, agenda, and the uh, which we're, we'll talk about in a second, um, and and absolutely responsible for the forthcoming legislation, uh, which is going to heavily regulate the internet in the UK and is which is being used as a template uh, for other countries. So just have a quick listen to this. Well, our disinformation and misinformation unit is, is working and we've done everything possible. I mean, I, I know that there have been um, accusations is a strong word, but concerns possibly from the opposition front bench that the disinformation and misinformation unit was, was no longer in existence. That's not the case. It's not true. It is there. It is working. We did have a pilot which ran for six months, which stopped, but the work from that pilot now continues with the misinformation and disinformation unit. And daily, 
That work takes place daily, and daily we work to remove that content online which is both harmful and, particularly when it comes to, to COVID-19 and vaccinations, which is harmful and provides misinformation and disinformation. Daily we have those contacts with the online providers, and the work is ongoing. Now, she's implying there that uh, the work of that unit, which the proper name for that is the Rapid Response Unit, it operates within the Cabinet Office, which is absolutely the, the height of the British Civil Service um, and, and the British government. Um, and she is implying there that, that its main activity is uh, countering various narratives around co uh, coronavirus and so on. But actually, this, this issue of uh, narrative control um, began uh, in 2014. Um, and really started kicking off in 2017. And the main issue, as far as the British government was concerned at that time, was Russia, uh, and because they were pursuing a very um, uh, anti-Russian narrative in the media uh, through Integrity Initiative. We've talked about that before as well, and so on. Uh, but it began in 2014 when David Cameron gave a, a, a speech to uh, the United Nations General Assembly, really saying, we have to start regulating the internet it's time. Uh, there's too much disinformation appearing on the internet. We've got to deal with it. And as far as he was concerned, you know, disinformation was not defined publicly, but uh, I think they had an idea of what they, what they meant by that. And then in 2017, it took a few years for it to really start to get uh, uh, momentum. But it began with uh, the, uh, the, the tech companies being brought into Downing Street to talk to Theresa May, who was the uh, Prime Minister at the time, and Amber Rudd, who was the Home Secretary at the time. Um, and so, you know, what, what they did was that they began a dialogue with the tech companies uh, to try to um, uh, encourage them to, to toe the line with respect to, to various types of, of content. And we have seen uh, systematically over the last three, four years, uh, critics of governments, cr critics of governments' uh, war policies, critics of, of uh, governments that are uh, pushing the anti-Russian narrative uh, being deplatformed over a much longer period. So this isn't just about uh, coronavirus by any means. Um, so th the process began in 2017. Uh, and as I say, very close dialogue with, with the uh, tech companies, especially Facebook. Um, and in fact, it was, uh, and this is really one of the key points, it, it did become an international issue. So uh, the UK is going to be pursuing, is pursuing at the moment, legislation uh, to regulate narratives on the internet. The EU is, is pursuing uh, legislation to regulate the internet in this way. Uh, but this uh, is something that all G7 countries have already signed up to in principle. Um, the UK and France working very closely, as they are on other defence matters uh, in this area as well. Um, and uh, one of the the key um, phrases that uh, we hear time and time again is, or words, is the word trust um, or uh, trust initiative. Um, and uh, uh, the idea behind that is that, that if you trust the BBC or you trust CNN uh, and you trust them implicitly, then you don't really have to think about what uh, they might be telling you. You just accept it. There's no requirement to, to look behind the headlines. Uh, you just believe uh, if they say that Russia is bad, then that's what uh, you believe by default. Um, as 2017 moved into 2018, tech companies were in, in front of parliamentary committees, left, right and centre. They were just always there giving advice, 
uh, telling people what was going on. Um, and then at the start of 2018, Theresa May, uh, speaking at the World Economic Forum, again said, internet regulation is what we need to pursue. Um, and, uh, but at the same time, in parallel, uh, the British government uh, attempting to underpin uh, the mainstream press. So they ran an inquiry to work out what, what's the problem with the mainstream press and media? Why is it not able to compete with, with social media? Uh, why are so many uh, narratives that, that the government is pursuing, why are they getting so, so much traction in, in opposing and counter-narratives? Uh, and so uh, they, they ran a, 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 an inquiry and they, they worked out a number of steps that they could take to reinforce uh, and underpin the business models of what are, what are, in fact, failing mainstream media organizations so that, so that government still has somewhere that they can put their narrative out through to the general public. Um, so it was in April of 2018 that the, the government set up the rapid response unit that Nadine Dorries was talking about that there. And as she said, it was initially given six months of funding. Um, and uh, so they are monitoring social media for who is uh, pushing out various narratives. What are the narratives that they're, push they're pushing out? What kind of traction are these narratives getting? How widely are they being spread and distributed and shared? Uh, but they are also they also have a team of people who are there to um, uh, report uh, any tweet or any Facebook post that they find uh, is what they might consider disinformation or misinformation. In other words, counter to their own. Uh, narrative, but also people that are actively involved running sock puppet accounts on the various social media platforms in order to try to undermine uh, some of the discussion that's going on uh, and so on. So initially six months uh, funding in April of 2018, and then uh, by the end of 2018, uh, that was fully funded. Um, and they also set up uh, an executive board on the what they described as the UK Council for Internet Safety. And uh, as time has gone on, they began by talking about uh, online harms and, and uh, harmful content on online. And eventually, that, uh, that terminology got replaced with the word safety because we all want to be safe, don't we? So they brought together everybody from Apple and the BBC, Facebook, GCHQ, which is the UK equivalent of the NSA, uh, Google, Microsoft, uh, Ofcom, we can talk a little bit more in a second. This is uh, what the regulator for broadcast media and telecommunications uh, in the UK. Um, the Scottish government, the Welsh government, uh, and various other internet uh, uh, bodies to create this uh, council for internet safety. Uh, and uh, uh, this is effectively attempting to push through uh, a, one policy across this wide range of, of organizations and so on. Um, now, they published their white paper on, on online harms in uh, April 2019, um, and that was supposed to lead to legislation. It's actually taken them quite a long time to develop that legislation. They published a white paper for what they're now calling the Online Safety Bill. Uh, the, they uh, then published a draft of the Online Safety Bill. They've just recently completed uh, two um, what do we call them, two uh, investigations into the, the bill itself. 
um, one by uh, a group called calling themselves the Online Safety Bill Scrutiny Committee, which was uh, separate from uh, any other parliamentary committee, and one uh, by the Digital Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee. So two separate uh, committees, and they basically uh, gave the legislation the green light. So that legislation is going to go to Parliament uh, in the not-too-distant future. And one of the things that that will do is that they will give Ofcom, uh, which is currently, as I say, the regulator for the uh, for broadcast media. So that's the BBC, uh, uh, ITV, Sky, and so on, all these British uh, broadcast channels. Um, and then uh, they are also the regulator for the telecommunications industry. So anybody that's providing the actual hardware uh, link for your internet connection, they regulate that as well. And now they're going to be given the role of regulating uh, content on the internet as well. Um, now, the person that Boris Johnson, uh, the current prime minister, had attempted to uh, encourage to become the chairman, the new chairman of Ofcom, because there's a, a change of uh, staff there, or there was, he thought there was going to be a change of staff there, uh, was a guy called Paul Dacre. And Paul Dacre was, the, uh, was editor of the Daily Mail in the UK for many, many years. Um, and uh, uh, so he was invited to become the chairman of Ofcom, uh, and he would take up that role uh, as the new legislation, the new censorship legislation, online safety bill, uh, would become uh, actual legislation. Uh, and he was promised that he would be able to bring his own staff into Ofcom um, and that uh, he would be uh, given a free rein to implement the legislation as he saw fit. Um, as it turned out then, uh, last week he withdrew uh, from that role um, because he was not going to be allowed to bring his own staff in. Uh, and the problem with Ofcom is that they currently have, I believe, 11 members of their board um, who are currently receiving pensions or money from the BBC um, and another 26 members of their board who are former UK government uh, senior civil servants and so on. Um, and so Dacre was basically saying, look, uh, I cannot uh, run this in any kind of independent way if uh, you know, the, the BBC are in such control of the regulator. And this is the regulator that's supposed to regulate the BBC amongst others. Uh, and one of the targets of that regulation, uh, as far as the broadcast media, of course, uh, is concerned, is RT. Um, and uh, uh, so there are protections in this new, uh, this new censorship legislation for mainstream press, but it's already been indicated and made clear that RT would not be uh, eligible for those protections. Um, so, so that's where we are at the moment. Uh, we have a situation that we're very, very close to um, uh, total control of the narrative uh, by the British government. Uh, this is a model that they're rolling out. I've mentioned this before. This is a model that they're rolling out uh, internationally. Um, and uh, they, let's see, what can we say about, about uh, the regime? They will uh, require mid, um, social media companies to, to remove content uh, as quickly as possible. Um, and if it isn't removed, those social media companies will be subject to extremely large fines and in some cases uh, criminal prosecutions as well. Um, and so, uh, and, and these criminal prosecutions, by the way, would not be sort of 
a corporate level criminal prosecution. These they're talking about uh, threatening prosecutions of individual managers within uh, the tech companies. This is going to have a massive chilling effect on free speech. So the, one other piece of legislation I just want to mention, which I can't remember the name of off the top of my head, but it's it's similar to, to legislation that I know you have in the United States, which is there to, to regulate an in inverted commas. Um, anybody, anybody that's viewed as being a foreign agent of a, of a, a company, that, a foreign company and so on. Um, within that legislation uh, is some, there are some clauses which uh, amend the Official Secrets Act in the UK. Uh, and what it does, it, it removes any um, defence under the, uh, any defence of public interest for whistleblowers. And so the, the concept of the public interest is effectively being removed from uh, anybody bringing any information to, to a journalist or to the public. Uh, and, uh, you know, the example that, that uh, is probably useful here, and if we're thinking in terms of Tony Blair, is, is a lady called Catherine Gunn, who uh, had worked for GCHQ, and um, she leaked the, uh, the email memo that came from the NSA to GCHQ asking, GCHQ to assist with uh, providing, you know, finding enough information that could be used to blackmail uh, some of the non-permanent members of the Security Council uh, in 2003 to encourage the Security Council to vote for a military conflict in Iraq. Uh, she took that to the, to the mainstream press, uh, eventually ended up um, being arrested under the Official Secrets Act. And was, uh, it was intended to prosecute her under that. Uh, but they uh, they dropped the case literally on the first day of the trial because uh, uh, she had asked for some details on, on, on you know as part of her dis disclosure for her defence, which the British government did not want to release. Um, so they dropped the prosecution. But nonetheless, um, the the story is that that prosecution was dropped uh, on the basis that she would use uh, a public interest defence. Um, that defence will no longer be available. And this seems to me uh, to be massively dangerous um, because no uh, whistleblower will be able to, to get any information out uh, to the mainstream press at this point. So, so that's pretty much where we're at at the moment, uh, Dennis. And uh, uh, so if, I don't know if you've got any questions. Yeah, I'm sure we're going to have questions, Mike. You've already done your job. You brought us a picture that was far worse than anybody would have imagined, but nonetheless true. So, Harley, first of all, let me ask you if you have any questions or response to what you heard that Mike just went through. Well, the only question I would have is whether there's any opposition to these kinds of narrative controls coming from any of the political parties, any of the, the leaders of the political parties, uh, or if there's just a general acceptance of the idea that security depends on controlling the narrative. Uh, well, it's much worse than that, Harley, because uh, uh, Nadine Dorries there, when she, when she got up, said, I know there have been some concerns from the opposition party, that's the Labour Party, uh, that, that we no longer have this counter-disinformation unit. So, so it's not only that there is no opposition to this counter-disinformation unit operating, the Labour Party is actually uh, complaining, complaining because they were under the impression that it wasn't actually operating. So they were demanding that it, that it, that it was operating. So that, that's, 
that's where we're at. There is no political opposition to this. The only opposition is from, you know, uh, uh, smaller media organisations and and privacy or or uh, you know the likes of of uh, um, Big Brother Watch and, and other NGOs of that type. Mm-hmm. Um, I have uh, <clears throat> something I want to put into the conversation here. Uh, I think we have uh, from one of the commentators, George Galloway. He said this a moment or two before the new year. I read the dread news that Tony Blair, the war criminal, the man responsible for a million dead people in Iraq, the man who sent extremism pulsing across the whole world, including here in our own country, including in this postal district, SW1, the man who with his friend Bill Clinton paved the way for the economic crash by their grotesque light touch deregulation of the banks and the finance houses in London, the abolition of the Glass-Steagall Act and the light touch of Gordon Brown and Tony Blair brought us all crashing down and we have not fully recovered from it even now. Um, All these years of austerity are because of the peculiar love affair between Tony Blair and Bill Clinton and the finance industry in the city of London. I would ask for a response from both of you, uh, not necessarily to the entirety of what Galloway said, but I think there's some interesting elements in what he poses. Um, Harley, obviously, I think you might find some interest in the... uh, what he has references with Glass-Steagall. Uh, but Mike, just so you let our, our people uh, here know what has, you know, the, the, you, you indicated it obviously by the one million plus signatures, but just the character of the both opposition and why this thing is so important for people here to understand. Well, the character of the opposition, I mean, Tony Blair, uh, without question, is... Um, there's probably no former prime minister that is hated, you know, universally in the UK as much as as Tony Blair. Uh, it's it uh, is very it's unfortunate that um, Jeremy Corbyn failed so spectacularly to 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 maintain his control of the Labour Party because what we have at the moment is is uh, you know the the trilateral commissions uh, Keir Starmer uh, and an absolute one hundred percent. Blairite uh, as the leader of the Labour Party at the moment, so so you know many people wouldn't uh, uh, wouldn't be fans of Jeremy Corbyn on a political level, but but uh, you know there was an opportunity there to to uh, reverse some of the worst uh, aspects of of the of what uh, you know of, of the the uh, the last 20, forty years or whatever whatever when did Tony Blair nineteen ninety eight or something wasn't it he he uh, he became Prime Minister, so so uh, so you know the 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 response to the uh, of the people signing that uh, that petition is is indicative of of the the feeling in the country, and we've got to remember that in two thousand and three, when he was attempting to bring people uh, into the to bring Britain into the war in Iraq. Uh, you know, there were around a million people out on the streets uh, saying that that should not happen. Now, he he ignored them uh, on the basis he said that things had changed since the protest took place. Uh, but uh, nobody has forgiven him since then. Uh, he uh, uh, pretends not to appreciate that uh, just how much he is disliked uh, in the country. So, uh, so that you know, that's that's really all I can say on that. Um, uh, yeah, that's 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 it. 
Yeah, okay. Um, and uh, Harley, actually, before you um, respond, actually, we have a little clip from Lynn who describes a bit about what Glass-Steagall is. So I think we'll play that just so that way viewers are okay. understand what we're talking about. Okay, what I've been pushing, of course, is this program around Glass-Steagall, but we've been pushing it from what I do every Friday night where I have a regular radio television program internationally, and uh, this is covered. But we're at the point where we, are, we have to immediately uh, install Glass-Steagall. Now, what does that mean? Glass-Steagall was the foundation of the formation of the United States. It was the, uh, what we call the Glass-Steagall today, which was established at that time. Now, that has been, that has been destroyed a number of times. That, that concept, which was set up by the uh, chief uh, organizer of, of the whole American system, uh, Alexander Hamilton. And his, desi his design is the design on which the United States Constitution was premised for action. We have since been destroying that or ripping it up again and again, as was done recently in, in the terrible years that have just proceeded here. And so the question is, Glass-Steagall now. Now what that means is that if we in the United States act with our powers as citizens of the United States to ensure that Glass-Steagall is installed in the United States now, we open the gates for a new system of, of economy, of, na of national economy, which other nations will go into. Why? because Glass-Steagall is the only formulation available in the transatlantic region in particular which could solve the problems we face now, the economic problems and related problems. So therefore, if we, if we get that through, then we have, and get Glass-Steagall through, then what happens? Europe's situation is generally hopeless. That is, the, the governments of Europe, the conditions of their laws and so forth, do not allow them to go directly into Glass-Steagall as an alternative. However, if the United States does that first, re reinstalls Glass-Steagall, which is what has to be done now, then immediately you have the basis in Glass-Steagall for agreements among other governments across the Atlantic and so forth, and these agreements mean that you are launching a new world system, which will, will act, actually address these kinds of problems. That's the simple practical solution. Glass-Steagall, what it would mean is that all the junk uh, credits are canceled. The junk is canceled. And then we get back to the, a, a credit system based on Glass-Steagall on, on Glass in particular, but actually on the original design by Alexander Hamilton of the credit system of the United States. Once we reestablish the credit system of the United States, which had been launched first by Alexander Hamilton, we are on the way home because every nation in the world needs that same program as their way out of, of chaos. If we, therefore, we can then, on that basis, and I know what the situation is in, Ch in China, for example, relevant to this, what the situation is in other parts of Asia and so forth. We, if we do this, we can turn the tide on the history of the United States to get back to what we were really intended to become when we were founded as a republic. That was Lyndon LaRouche in 2013. 
it's eight yeah, nine years ago. Uh, uh, and so, uh, Harley, with that context, why don't you let us know what your thinking is about what you heard here? Well, there's, there's a lot I could say. In fact, th this has been the, the center of a lot of our activity going back to the time when Glass-Steagall was repealed in 1999. But let me just make two points. One, the fact that the uh, Blair and Clinton worked together on this, it was actually Clinton and Gore who brought the Blairite third way into the Democratic Party. But it goes back further because it exposes the fraud of left versus right, liberal versus conservative, because the deregulation policy actually was the Maggie Thatcher policy, the Big Bang. And the fact that Blair bought into it, uh, that Clinton, supposedly the liberal, uh, signed the repeal of Glass-Steagall, which came from conservatives, Republicans, as Graham Leach Bliley, Phil Graham was the author of it, that this has been a major feature of the collapse of the Western economy, the deregulation, the neoliberal policy, uh, austerity against government policies, turning everything over to the private corporate cartels. Now, there's a specific point to this, though, that comes up at this moment, which is really interesting. On December 30th, under a provision of the uh, the uh, uh, Barney Frank, the Dodd-Frank bill, the, bank, the Federal Reserve has to report on the flows of, of funds from the, eight pre, from the quarter, eight quarters ago. And so on December 30th, they reported what happened the last quarter of 2019. Now, I think we were pretty much alone in, in really fully exposing this, going back to the Jackson Hole Federal Reserve Conference the, the uh, World Economic Forum, moving to the uh, idea of the Great Reset, which was to uh, go ahead and, and keep the, the quantitative easing going to keep the bankrupt banking system going while they moved to a total top-down banker dictatorship. But on December 30th, the Federal Reserve finally released a report of what happened in that fourth quarter of 2019. $4.5 trillion went that quarter to 24 banks through something called the repo loan process. But the bulk of it went to four or five banks. And the most important banks that got the bonus, the, the, the borrowing from the Fed were JP Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, and Citigroup. Now, this was reported on December 30th. No media covered it. No financial talking heads talked about it. It wasn't in the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, any of these. The one place that reported it was Wall Street on Parade, which I will say, along with us, was one of the few uh, uh, blogs that actually covered this whole shift to quantitative easing as the, uh, the next phase of the post-2008 bailout. Now, what's important is that the authors of, of Wall Street on Parade made, made two points as to why it's not being covered. Now, the first point has to do with the fact that uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, and Citigroup are three of the largest share owners of the New York Federal Reserve. The New York Federal Reserve, which provided somewhere in the range of 13 to $17 trillion in bailout funds in two years, uh, they're owned by private banks. 
And those three banks received a huge amount of that money that was was uh, put out by the New York Federal Reserve. So the authors of the article said, maybe the financial press and the media don't want you to know that while you're scraping by facing inflation, facing higher energy prices, higher food prices, uh, problems in every sector of the economy, that the banks are getting trillions of dollars through the Federal Reserve, which they're essentially using the Federal Reserve to loan it to them to roll over their bad debts. So while you're starving, while the majority of the people are scraping by, these banks and the 1% of the, the equity funds and, and so on, hedge funds, are making getting trillions of dollars of free money to speculate. And this has a lot to do with the fact that four banks, these four banks, uh, JP Morgan Chase, Citibank, Goldman Sachs, and Add the Bank of America, control 90 or held 91% of the $193 trillion in notional derivatives held by all banks. So the bailout was to four banks, really. Now, the uh, Pam Martins, who wrote the column, said it's clear that the, the, most of the media don't want the American people to know that. But then she makes the second point, which is why I'm bringing this up. Uh, she said, this is a scandal. But one of the things they're afraid of is if people knew this, they would support the return of Glass-Steagall. So I think this is a, a really important point that we have to use. The same people running the strategic crises, the same people running the, the Green New Deal, the Blairs, the Hillary Clintons, uh, and so on, the same people pushing for confrontation with Russia and China are the ones who are looting the world through a, a financial system and moving toward even more top-down control with the Great Reset. So I, I think that's, the, to me, the importance of, of this uh, connection of Blair to the policy of, of deregulation of the, the financial system and, and privatization. Okay. Mike, we have a question for you. This is from Kynan. He says, it is quite encouraging to hear about the mass resistance by the British people to the outrageous knighthood uh, that was granted uh, to the war criminal uh, Tony Blair. The work of people like Galloway and yourself, Mike, is incredibly important. I was very shocked to hear about the legislation you mentioned, which prohibited whistleblowers and other journalists from merely speaking the truth about the atrocities being committed by their own governments, as, as in the cases of people like Edward Snowden or Julian Assange and other patriots. In this heavily censored atmosphere, how will we grant people like Assange and Snowden the, the mobility and freedom to reveal what is truthful? How will we be able to navigate around this legislation prohibiting the freedom of speech and authentic journalism? Um, and he has a separate question for Harley, but let's take yours first. Well, I think the first, the first thing to point out is this legislation uh, is still in draft form. It is not passed yet. So there's still an opportunity uh, for campaigners uh, and others to to be uh, uh, lobbying their MPs and making sure that it doesn't get through in this form or in, in any form that, that is as draconian as this. So, you know, there are, uh, I think there are uh, four or five pieces of legislation that we are particularly concerned about at the moment. And one of the reasons that we're uh, very concerned about them is because of the, the breadth of the, the, the lockdown on, on the narrative. So one 
one piece of legislation is is going to prevent. Uh, you know, we mentioned Tony Blair and a million people out in the streets in two thousand and three uh, to uh, to protest uh, and to make sure that he understood that there was no support in this country for for a war in Iraq. Uh, well, the police crime and courts bill will prevent that type of protest in the future. Um, the online safety bill, as I mentioned, is going to deal with uh, preventing uh, any kind of protest or county narrative on, on the internet. Uh, the, uh, the other piece of legislation, sorry the name escapes me at the moment, that, that we were talking about, uh, which is primarily to deal with, with perceived threat from, from foreign influence, uh, is, uh, is going to prevent the public interest defence and therefore have a chilling effect on investigative journalism and whistleblowers, as we've said. These are bills which are uh, on their way through and there's still time to, to stop them. But the, the thing that, that is of real concern about them is that, that, that uh, and it's something we haven't really seen in the past, but the terms that are used within the legislation are largely undefined and the, uh, or they're vaguely defined or, the, or they could be interpreted in a million different ways. Um, and there isn't enough time being made uh, for uh, parliamentary debate to try to nail down what some of these things mean. Um, and as well as that, there is massive scope within all these pieces of legislation for amendment to the legislation after it's been passed as an act of parliament um, through secondary legislation. In the UK, this secondary legislation is called a statutory instrument, and this is something that the, the Secretary of State uh, writes and it supposedly gets laid down before Parliament. It amends the primary legislation, uh, and but usually they lay this the statutory instruments on Parliament on a Sunday night when there's nobody there, so so they don't get the scrutiny that that they should get. Um, so these acts, these bills that are going through are being proposed and and could become acts uh, if if they aren't uh, eff effectively opposed. They are enabling acts because they give so much scope for for mission creep and scope creep. In the future, uh, and I think that's that more than anything is what makes them particularly dangerous. Okay, uh, his second question, but it happens to be the case that his second question was being asked by somebody else as well. Uh, so he said, and this was to Haru Harley, I would like uh, Harley to speak more to Tony Blair's current role in the destabilization of Kazakhstan, if he knows what that is, what has been revealed up to now. But Mike. To you was some, something was say, saying. Uh, Tony Blair was involved in Kazakhstan for years through Blair Associates. Um, he said something from 2010 to 2016. What role did that play, or what role do people associated with Blair or British intelligence play in the destabilization and uh, involvement in uh, that area of the world? I real. I also remember that Prince Andrew. Uh, played a role as a representative of, uh, of, of, of British interests in Kyrgyzstan and some other locations. So if you want to start, Harley, you want to start and then yeah. I go to Mike. Great. Well, in terms of Kazakhstan, I, I know that Blair had was, was involved uh, in the period around 2013. He was listed as an advisor to Nazarbayev, the, the former leader. Uh, and his wife also had a... Uh, some kind of legal contract with the government of Kazakhstan or with a, um, an oil company that was involved in it. 
you know, the, the, one of the things we have to look at, I don't know what Blair is doing at present, what his role would be, but the fact that he has these long-term contacts and that the British often play both sides and things like this means we should do a real deep investigation into what Blair is doing now. But Blair had a, they actually had an office there. Uh, one of Blair's organizations was, was operating out of Kazakhstan, which is a major oil producer. And that's one of the interests that the British in particular had with Kazakhstan and breaking it away from Russia. Uh, so that's, that's what I know about the Blair connection. Again, we have to look into this more deeply because wherever there are these kinds of destabilizations, you know that Soros is around, non-governmental organizations, uh, Blair is involved in it, and Blair is not just involved for the destabilizations, but to grab the money, because these guys are extremely corrupt. Okay, Mike? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, if we're looking at Tony Blair, uh, we need to be looking at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, which I think is his main outlet at the moment. And uh, uh, so what is, the nat what is the nature of the global change that he is, he is working towards? Uh, there's a lot of research still to be done on that. Um, but, you know, as Harley said, it's not just Tony Blair. There are many other NGOs operating. The Foreign Office is funding uh, many of them, uh, and uh, or at least they're providing funding to many of them. Uh, and plus, we've got, as I mentioned in, in the main presentation, the likes of BBC Media Action and other similar um, uh, narrative development agencies, shall we say, attempting to uh, uh, work with directly with opposition groups to push a particular uh, policy agenda, which in the case of BBC Media Action is a foreign commonwealth Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, as it is now, uh, agenda. And uh, so it's by no means just Tony Blair. He, he, uh, he is a, a, a nice uh, uh, target, perhaps, but, uh, but it goes much uh, beyond that. And the, the amounts of money involved are huge. Okay. Um, we have uh, another uh, intervention from Lyndon LaRouche. Uh, this one will be uh, on the issue of the importance well, I'll put it like this. Uh, Lynn was asked a question about, at that time, Barack Obama, who we had been attacking rather vociferously. Um, and I, I think we'll put it in here to get a response, particularly from you, Harley, on the uh, on how to how to think about people like Blair and Obama. Uh, let's roll that. Well, first of all, you have to identify who the real enemy is. Obama is a tool of the enemy. He is not as such of the rank of enemy. The enemy is the Anglo-Dutch system, which is an empire and has been dominating the world ever since the 17th century, when the Dutch started the whole system, that whole system. But the history of empire and imperialism goes back much earlier. So what we're dealing with, we're dealing with a modern form of imperialism. This is dominated by the Anglo-Dutch interests. The Anglo-Dutch interests control our United States under this president and under many of the members of Congress and other f officials. This started with back, you know, when uh, Franklin Roosevelt died, the enemies of America inside the United States and from inside Europe moved quickly to take over the United States by using the death of Franklin Ronald Roosevelt as the means for doing so. We've been going through that kind of hell for a long time. I'm a veteran of that kind of hell. 
And I've been fighting against that all these years. Now, but what we're looking at is the enemy is a world empire. It's a world empire in the sense that it has a core, is Anglo-Dutch. The Dutch are the ones who created this particular system. There have been systems like that beforehand, but the Dutch system was, is the, today the greatest evil on the planet in terms of intentions. The British are a subsidiary feature of the Dutch organization. Now, what we're dealing with is they are out to a policy which is stated very clearly by the Queen of England. And the same attitude is by the ruling forces in Denmark, in, in, in the Netherlands. Their intention is, and stated, is to reduce the human population from an estimated level of 7 billion people today to less than one. The Queen is explicit on this thing, to reduce the human population from 7 billion people to less than 1 billion people. And this is coming on now. That's the enemy. So the problem is that when you try to deal with the subsidiary enemies, you take, take your attention away from the real enemy. Because if you beat the real enemy, the little enemies will disappear from the scene They'll, or become quiet and behave themselves. And that's the point. So we, we're dealing with a situation now. We're on the verge of a, of a thermonuclear war. We're hanging on the edge of thermonuclear war, which is a war launched over the Pacific region, presumably led by the United States and Britain and the, and the Dutch, that organization. And that's what we have to defeat. Now we have more allies are coming along. China is becoming a significant ally. Russia is a, a significant force in this process. India will become a significant force. So forth, so on. So therefore, what we have to do is take the, the content of principle. What is our intention? What do we want? What should we want? Even more important than what we do want. So what, if we know what we should want, then we want to know we want to get rid of that problem. And we want to organize people around the world to rejoice in the fact that they are given the opportunity to participate in freeing mankind of this victimization. Then we have to find a new world for us. Why? Over the, the human race has been on this planet of ours for a very long time. Somewhere along the time, probably one case in South Africa, a man was discovered by archaeologists to have eaten food at nighttime. That, was a, that became the difference between mankind and the monkey and the ape is that mankind used food. Now, what, what else does that mean? It means that mankind has progressed in its powers step by step through development all the way through. We now use modes of power which nobody would have dreamed of centuries ago, even centuries ago. So we now get the point we are going to have to organize mankind, understanding we can no longer have war on this planet because major war would be thermonuclear war. And thermonuclear war is extinction warfare. Therefore, we must eliminate this factor. You know? And we must get people to understand and take courage from the fact that this problem can be defeated. But it requires the measures to be taken by ordinary people and other people to agree we're going to stop this nonsense. We don't need warfare on this planet. Warfare on this planet where thermonuclear fusion is, is at the top of the list. You can't beat that. Therefore, you have to, you have to actually reach the point where you control the nations sufficiently 
that they joint together will not let that happen. Once you get that kind of cooperation, the understanding that beating the other nation is foolishness, you've got to bring nations together on the basis of their common understanding of what their need of their nation is and to help protect them against attacks from outside. We need a new view of mankind. And with the thermonuclear fusion, it is the capability now. What we're, with my age even, concerned with is thermonuclear fusion as a, a means across the Trans-Pacific region and other places. If we do that with thermonuclear fusion as a power, mankind will enter into a completely new status in the universe, or at least in the solar system, or the nearby part of the solar system. We can achieve, if we can consolidate the development of thermonuclear fusion, which is the greatest power that mankind has the ability to produce today, we can create the technologies which, of which man could not even imagine most of them today. And we can do that within a dozen years. In the meantime, if we can get that kind of promise and commitment among people to do that goal, then people will take courage and they will know how to fight against the threats to that, to that achievement. We can, from a dozen years from now, we can have secured really what is the future of mankind on this planet. And we will be going on to manage Mars. I'm not recommending that anyone go to Mars, any human being. But we can, send, we can develop equipment on Mars, systems on Mars, which will perform useful functions for mankind from Mars. And so therefore we have a perspective not only for the United States, not only for the nation, not only for the world, but also for mankind. Mankind has the responsibility and potential ability to do that, to accomplish that work. We can create, within the next dozen years if we do it, we can create the ins clear inspiration for all mankind to know that this is possible, that mankind's position in the universe is secured for the time being, and that we can go on to higher levels. We need that sense of solidarity among peoples. And when they are supporting each other in the right to solidarity, then they can be victorious. I'm looking at the, I won't live that long, but the next dozen years will be decisive if we can get thermonuclear fusion on the program, which I know is possible. So, Harley, obviously what happened here is when Lynn started out talking about who, who the enemy was not and who the enemy was, and then he uh, continued. So, you have the floor. Yeah, I mean, it's always interesting to, to hear some of these old clips from Lynn because uh, so much of what we see in the present situation was encapsulated in what Lynn was talking about in, in that clip, which I think you said was 2013, that he was, in a sense, forecasting what we're facing today. Now, I want to pick up on what he said about the Anglo-Dutch imperial system, because this is the, the, the really important question. Who is the enemy and how can they be defeated? Now, this is a system which has evolved. It's not the same as it was when the British and the Dutch were competing for colonies across the oceans. Uh, but it's the same methods, the same principle, the Venetian methods, which come back to divide and conquer. This is one of the subjects of, of Shakespeare's great works, for example, Othello. 
the the way that the Venetians were able to manipulate and uh, use psychological profiling to make sure they could maintain control from the top. Now, this Venetian method today is directed out of the city of London, British intelligence, Chatham House. Uh, it was picked up after World War I uh, directly with the Council on Foreign Relations in the United States. But where did it come from? There, there are two things I just want to bring up. One is geopolitics. What was the central theme of the origins of geopolitics? It's there could never be economic integration between Western Europe, Central Europe, and Eurasia. That's from the standpoint of the British Empire. That that's the no-no. That cannot be tolerated or allowed because then the whole British system, the whole global system will be defeated. And so that that's what we're seeing today with the attacks on Russia and China. But what's the other element of it? Who is it who's opposing that? And this is where you come up with a term that very few Americans know, which is called synarchism, which was a strategy for corporate cartels operating above governments, taking over and controlling the policies of governments for the benefit of these international institutions in finance. Uh, think about hedge funds, think about the major banks in raw material cartels, think about the oil companies. Uh, food cartels, big pharma. Now, this policy was, was put in place with a vengeance after World War I. You had the corporate cartels operating out of uh, Wall Street, working together with the British, directly coordinated with Sir Montague Norman, the governor of the Bank of England. And these cartels moved into Germany after the defeat of the Germans in World War I, and more importantly, the, the real defeat of Germany was the imposition of the Versailles Treaty. And as Germany went through a Weimar hyperinflation in 23, chaos in the, the late 20s, street fighting, left versus right, who was running it? It was being run by the cartels, the financial cartels, the banks of Wall Street, London, and Germany, the uh, oil cartels, the steel trust, they were the ones who ran the policies of governments, and their goal was to create in Germany a fascist, what we call now fascist, austerity policy so that the government would be capable of paying debts. But how do you do that? You basically have a slave labor system. But at the same time, you build up a military to put, put Germany against Russia, against the Soviet Union. That was the British intention going into World War II. That was what Roosevelt reacted against. Now, just zoom up to the present with Tony Blair. The counter to this global corporatism, what, what some people just call globalization uh, or the new world order, what's the counter to it? It's the principles of the peace of Westphalia. This was the agreement that was reached in 1648, a couple of years of, of intense discussion, dialogue, diplomacy, to end the 30 years war in Europe. And they ended it with a decision that each country has a right to its own sovereignty, that other countries should not interfere in the internal affairs of their neighbors, 
and that each country should recognize that the common good for your neighbor is also good for you. Uh, a kind of in international idea of the golden rule. Now, Tony Blair, beginning in the late 90s, launched an international crusade against the peace of Westphalia. He said, that's no longer right. We now need what some people call the responsibility to protect, that we need these supranational agencies to make sure that sovereign nations no longer can defend themselves. Now, why is that? Is it because he's really opposed to human rights violations? Blair is one of the biggest uh, promoters of human rights violations on the planet had nothing to do with protecting poor nations and poor people. It had to do with protecting the interests of the global cartels. And that's why Blair was at the center of this push to get rid of the principle of the peace of Westphalia. So the counter to that is what? The common good, the general welfare, and finding common interests with other countries. That's how you resolve the problem of Ukraine. You, the people of Ukraine are not helped by having a NATO military buildup turning their country into a possible battlefield between the West and Russia. That's not in their interest. What they need is economic development. They need to expropriate the oligarchs. They need to have a regulated banking system that's not run by the International Monetary Fund in the city of London, but a national banking system that generates credit for the development of the physical economy of Ukraine. That's LaRouche's idea. That's where we have to go if we're going to get solutions. Diplomacy is fine, talking and dialogue is fine, but the question is not just to look for a lull in fighting, but to find how we can work together to pursue common interests. And, and that's really, I think, the broader point of what Lynn devoted his life to this idea of the common interests of mankind and to achieve that, to recognize the unique quality of all human beings created in the image and likeness of God with the capability to explore both the infinitesimal reaches of space and the smallest, tiniest uh, particles nanoparticles that we can investigate. So I think that's really the key to address this question of who is the enemy and how, you, how do you defeat them? Okay, Mike, we have uh, basically two questions, but I think I'm going to give both of them to you at the same time for you. One is from Cade, and he is asking, given the failure of Corbyn's and Starmer's takeover of the Labor Party, is there anything hopeful electorally going on in UK politics? That's the first question. The second one's from Jose, and he's asking, why do European courts feel they have the right to dictate what you can and can't post online? Given the talks of regulating the internet and increasing surveillance and monitoring of what people do online, what would be required of everyday people? Will we need to go back to meeting in person and convening? Um, how can that be done in a time of COVID? Is using the internet already a losing game since you're playing by their rules just by using it? Well, those are the two questions. Yeah, I think I'll I'll, I'll come on to, to is there any hope in politics in a second? That um, I hear this I hear this uh, concern that we're falling in you know we're 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 falling into some kind of trap by using 
the internet. Uh, I hear that quite a lot, and I think it's a mistake. Um, you know, we we have to use the tools that are available to us. It doesn't mean, for, for example, the Tony Blair uh, 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 petition is on change.org. Change.org, uh, you know, people have looked into the background of change.org, who financed it and so on, and 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 they're they're uh, then saying, well, actually, we don't want to use that platform to to get our voice heard because because it's had Soros money or it's had. Uh, whatever money coming from whatever whatever source. So, uh, but if you don't if you don't use the tools that are available to, uh, to 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 let your voice be heard, then of course your voice isn't heard. Um, and so that's what we have, and that's and we should use it. Uh, now, the, the, it's it's interesting that that if we go back to the early days of the internet, uh, there was uh, you know people had websites set up, there were discussion forums, discussion groups, and so on. Uh, but there was very little cross propagation of information between various discussion groups, and and you know after nine eleven, for goodness sake, there were there were dozens of of nine uh, eleven um, forums out there, and and they they all had their own uh, explanations for what happened, and they, they were actually quite vitriolic to each other. There was quite a lot of uh, angst and anger between the various nine eleven groups, but once. Facebook and and Twitter and and these kinds of platforms came along. Um, that sort of problem changed into a different kind of problem. But but actually, the the, the point is that that, that uh, ideas and uh, and views started to uh, propagate amongst people that would never have come into contact with them before. This was actually, uh, although you know. It, you know, there are many, many people saying Facebook was, uh, you know, funded by the CIA originally that we shouldn't be using it on all this kind of thing. It has been, from a from the point of view of getting ideas out there, has been a massively important tool. And the same for Twitter. Twitter, you can engage with people that you just simply could not otherwise engage with. You can engage with MPs directly. You can engage with con- congressmen directly. You can engage with people working in in, in NGOs. Uh, directly and and you can you can uh, challenge them directly if you can manage to to avoid being deplatformed in the process. So you know I think it's it is definitely a mistake to to uh, uh, to to, th- to sort of refuse to use th- those types of of uh, facilities. Use them while they're there. Uh, and, and in the meantime, we've got a campaign to make sure that uh, legislation, which is Making uh, you know, putting a uh, an obligation on uh, tech companies to de-platform people rather than just uh, a, a sort of recommendation that they do. Uh, we've got to stop that before before it happens. Uh, if we look at, at at what's happening as people are deplatformed, I mean, I'm kind of kind of the government narrative is being pushed onto these platforms where they can be basically ignored by uh, by everybody else. So. Uh, we've got to fight against that that uh, that move. Um, I think um, getting onto the hope in politics uh, in in the UK, uh, pol- traditional politics is not um, is not where there is hope because uh, you know there it's 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 uh, increasingly unlikely you'll even see MPs taking an active role in in debate or uh, in scrutiny of bills. Um, and uh, so that, and certainly with with Keir Starmer in charge of the Labour Party at the moment, there's no opposition whatsoever to to Boris Johnson. I mean, 
Uh, he, he Recent uh, uh, votes in the House, uh, Boris Johnson has only managed to get passed with the support of the opposition party because he had, uh, he had some uh, rebels within his own party so he, and he lost his majority for some of the recent votes uh, and so he only was able to get those, vo- those uh, votes passed with the support of the opposition party. So that's a pretty interesting situation to be in where the opposition party is in fact supporting the government. Um, uh, so Keir Starmer uh, is not um, in any, providing any, any opposition. He is a Blairite and uh, really Blair and, and the Tory policies at the moment, uh, they're not so different. Um, so really what it, what it needs is for people, individuals, ordinary people, to start engaging with their MPs again, but but that's that's a potentially a difficult thing to get them to do because there's so much cynicism at the moment. We we've got to we've got to persuade people that they need to engage with and encourage and get those MPs back into Parliament and thinking about what it is they're they're giving their tacit approval to. Okay, so uh, Harley, you have anything you want to state in response to either of these things? I actually have a question for Mike, which is, why is it called the Noble Order of the Garter? Where, where does that come from? Um, I, I don't know all the de- I don't know the detail of that, Harley. It it is, uh, I believe, thirteenth century. Uh, it was Edward the Third, anyway, who established the Noble Order of the Garter, uh, and I think there was some dodgy uh, uh, event took place that had. Some body women or something. I can't. I can't remember the details of it. But there was a garter belt. There was a garter thrown, and and uh, uh, and he, he decided to name the, the the highest chivalric order at the time after after that garter. So uh, yeah, I'd, I'd have to. There's a man with a sense of humor. Well, I, I can see Tony Blair being willing to die for a garter taken off the thigh of Queen Elizabeth, but I don't know about anybody else. Well, well, we we. We uh, we were, weren't sure which leg he was going to wear it on, and and uh, whichever leg it was, we were wanting to get hold of it. But uh, you know the other the other possibility. I mean, it is a possibility, but uh, you know there are rumours that uh, Queen Elizabeth didn't like Tony Blair very much. So so there is always the possibility she might uh, cut his head off uh, with the sword at the time. Maybe that's why she awarded it in the first place. I don't know, but anyway, we'll see. There's a good tradition that goes back to Henry VIII. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, we just got a question, which I'll ask to you, Harley, and then uh, we, we're going to have a um, just a final just a final round after that uh, of things. So here's the qu- this just came in is Andrew is asking, Harley, can you comment on the 1999 Kyrgyzstan embassy meeting where Prince Andrew openly stated that the British still were playing the great game? Well, I, I've heard that that meeting took place. I mean, the, the point about the great game is really a relevant point. The, it's clear that's what the British are still doing. And it, it, the great game preceded Mackinder's adoption of the idea of geopolitics. But it's the same idea. The, this was in a period of time when the British felt threatened by the Russian Empire. At that time, the British Empire included the Indian subcontinent, and the whole idea was that the, the central concern was what, what's known today as Central Asia, but also especially Afghanistan. 
and the Khyber Pass as a pathway through which the Russians could move supposedly to fulfill Peter the Great's dream of a warm water port going through India, what later became India and Pakistan, to the Indian Ocean. Now, there were many, many battles fought between Russians and, and British mercenaries, uh, also against people of the uh, people who lived in Afghanistan, to control that part of the world. And one of the mythologies that grows out of this is that the Afghans were savage barbarians who essentially uh, had to be pushed aside by the British or civilized by the British uh, to join with the British to keep the Russians out. Now, the fact is that there is a, a great deal of evidence that Afghanistan, where, what is Afghanistan today, was not a backward area. It was an area of cities. It was along the Silk Road. Uh, and it's in that area that one of the greatest thinkers of the so-called Middle Ages, Ibn Sina, or Avicenna, came from, which is why Helga has taken the name Operation Ibn Sina for her commitment to not just provide humanitarian aid to Afghanistan, but to focus especially on healthcare. Ibn Sina was a, a doctor, a, a medical professional. And the tragedy of Afghanistan today is that you have, according to David Beasley of the World Food Organization, the World Food Pro Program, over 9 million people on the edge of starvation. That is people who are starving today because of the Western policies of withholding aid because of their opposition to the Taliban. So this is a continuation of the great game. The, the, the idea that if you keep this part of the world destabilized and poor and a center for breeding terrorism and, and refugees, that it will destabilize the neighbors, in particular Russia and China. And we've seen that in terms of the so-called Uyghur movement in China, the Islamic fundamentalist Uyghur separatists. Uh, we see it in Chechnya. We see it with the coordination of people who have come from those areas into Iraq and Syria and trained to go back to Russia and China to fight. So the fact that Prince Andrew, would, have, who, by the way, is another one of these guys who's always sniffing for money, was involved in that area, Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, uh, and would have made a comment like that, shows that he's not all that stupid, that he knows exactly what the great game is about and, and why the British are playing it. Just so it's clear, I mean, that'd be for us, you know, he had a role including in the BAE black box funds. And I think this refers to the time when he was having a conversation with the ambassador, the American ambassador in Kyrgyzstan. Mm -hmm. Her name was Gefeller, I think. And I was able to uh, find a reference. I think the Guardian covered it at the time. Um, and he said that, uh, the prince said, the United Kingdom, Western Europe, and by extension, you Americans too, are now back in the thick of playing the great game. Uh, and this time we aimed to win. And apparently Ambassador Gefeller reminded him, he said that the United States is not here to do that. We are supporting Kyrgyzstan's independence and sovereignty, but we welcome good relations uh, with, with Kyrgyzstan and all of its neighbors, including Russia. And apparently she said, and this was a quote from her at the time, the prince pounced at the, so at the sound of that name, meaning the name Russia. He told the <laughs> ambassador, 
He was a frequent visitor to Central America and the Caucasus and had noted a marked increase in Russian pressure and concomitant anxiety among the local nations. Um, then said he was very worried about Russia's resurgence in the, re in the region. Uh, then he turned to the topic of China. Uh, he recounted that when he had re recently asked the president of Tajikistan what he thought of growing Chinese influence, the president had responded in language I won't use in front of ladies. Gefeller is, is a woman, the ambassador is a, a woman. Uh, and then uh, he, there were other people present for the meeting, in this meeting, um, and they went back and forth about, well, the Russians are thought about sympathetically, but the Chinese are not. And then Andrew nodded, terming Chinese economic and possibly other expansion as, quote, providently, probably inevitable, but a menace nonetheless. So that, that's what was being referred to, just to be uh, put the clarification. That is the uh, great game. That's the great game. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Mike, you have any comment on that, or can we... Uh, no, other than Prince Andrew, of course, isn't playing the great game anymore. <laughs> yeah, there's actually, uh, you know, you mentioned that. I think we have He's a, on the bench. <laughs> uh, we, when, when George Galloway was talking about the, uh, the uh, knighthood, uh, he made some remarks. I think if you may bring them up, we'll, we'll, we're not going to read them all. We'll just reference them because of what you just said. Don't do it, your majesty. Don't do it. It's not too late. Think again, your majesty. Turn, turn, turn. As Mike Ghislaine Maxwell yet. At this rate, they'll be putting her in the Privy Council. Dave <laughs> Ghislaine, Dave Ghislaine, the child sex trafficker, is still being referred to in the British media as a socialite, whatever that means. And he goes on like that in that vein. Uh, uh, go, go past this. There's, a, there's some things in the next one. He talks about how intelligence agencies are involved with this. Uh, well, she's now been found guilty against all of the predictions of those who said it could never happen. Now awaits the sentencing of Ghislaine Maxwell, the daughter, of course, of the greatest British thief of the 20th century, the publisher Robert Maxwell, the scars from whom I could show you if you'd like to see them. Uh, I, I wanted to stop, stop there. Oh, oh, well, there's one other thing. But why then did the judge seal all the papers, just like Dr. David Kelly's postmortem and other medical and tribunal evidence? Why did that happen, Your Honor, the judge in New York? After all, was Ghislaine Maxwell's pimping only for Jeffrey Epstein? And so on. He goes on like that. So, Mike, I'd like you to take the opportunity just to give people a little bit more of an idea of this Maxwell issue in the, shall we say, non QAnon in universe, in other words, the real situation here of what this thing, not even the Ghislaine Maxwell, but but the whole Maxwell business, which I don't think is well known by Americans. And uh, certainly something is being proposed concerning, obviously, the issue of Andrew and other personages. Well, uh, the, the royal family had, I mean, uh, the, the fact that uh, Prince Andrew was is uh, clearly uh, accused by people within the, the, the Epstein-Maxwell uh, uh, you know, control of Epstein and Maxwell and so on. Uh, and the fact that uh, uh, Epstein and Maxwell, uh, there is a photograph doing the rounds of, of them, I believe, at Windsor Castle. Uh, so, you know, it was clear that he was inviting them onto royal property as well as uh, uh, him visiting them on... on uh, places that they, that they had control of. 
Um, but you know, the Roth family has has many questions to ask. I mean, for example, the 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 biggest scandal uh, in recent years of, of uh, child sexual abuse is is Jimmy Savile, who was uh, you know a BBC presenter for many many years, uh, working with children. Uh, but he he had access to to all kinds of of places. He had the keys to to uh, Stoke Mandeville Children's Hospital. Uh, he had access to uh, high security uh, mental facilities where they sent you know the likes of uh, Peter Sutcliffe, who was uh, known as the Yorkshire Ripper. He had murdered multiple uh, prostitutes in, in the north of England, um, and. Jimmy Savile had been given a knighthood, just as Tony Blair has been given a knighthood by the royal family. Or, well, actually, we don't know exactly who by, but you know the photographs of of Jimmy Savile with Prince Charles, photographs with. So, so the connections in this area are very dark, and there are many of them. Uh, and although there's no um, uh, proof as such, uh, the circumstantial evidence uh, that 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 the British royal family is involved in this type of activity, uh, there's plenty of it. Okay, uh, and uh, I think, uh, well, there are some other things which we won't ask here, uh, but uh, Harley, if you have any comment on that, and otherwise we've got a final um, clip from Lynn I'd like you to respond to. No, why don't we go to Lynn? Yeah, this one is just uh, sort of at, we're winding down, we're coming to come to the conclusion here, and um, uh, this was, again, this is all, all these clips from 2013. Uh, so eight years ago, eight plus years ago. Uh, and in this clip, there's a discussion concerning Wall Street, essentially, uh, I, by extension, City of London, and, and how, uh, looking at the actual financial power, how that has to be responded to, since obviously we've, we've moved past talking about merely a, a uh, Tony Blair or a Maxwell or an Epstein or a this or a that. Uh, to something more, uh, more fundamental. Uh, so we'll just roll that and have you respond, and uh, from there we'll conclude. So I do see a, a huge problem with the Wall Street banks. I, it, is, it is a problem, but I'm not afraid of dealing with it. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm lusting to do that. <laughs> in the under speaks. Now we're at a point where this. Remember, the United States government right now is bankrupt. It is totally bankrupt. It's more than bankrupt. Now, that is not a very strong government if it's totally bankrupt. It's in trouble. So, so therefore, we have to understand what this bankruptcy is and what, what we're going to do about it. And my knowledge is that this system, this government, and things that are associated with it, and Wall Street, are all on the verge of being chopped. It's that close. The problem is it's like in warfare. You get to a, a battlefield situation. At that point, you have to make certain decisions. Are you going to make the right decision that wins the battle, or are you not? The worst thing that can happen to you is cowardice. Because when you lose your optimism, and I don't mean optimism, I'm going to win anyway, but the kind of optimism that says, I'm not going to quit. And that's what you need. And you have to help other people take the same view. What I see out there, the, the Congress is in disgrace. Wall Street is hated. Hated more and more. And the, the forces are there, sufficient to move forces politically to solve these problems in the immediate future. 
But what I see also from experience, I've seen many times when we were, somebody was on the verge of victory and they goofed, they gave up. And they, but you have to be not only courageous, but you have to be thoughtful. You have to think clearly. You've got to discuss with people what the issues are. Try to find out what you think and what other people together with you can think can be done. And once, you, once they begin to think in those terms of searching for the solution as an active possibility, then trying to find out what is that solution. And that's what I depend upon. Depend upon the fact that there are solutions. My job is to know what the solutions might be. And therefore I push those solutions in order to get people to understand that there are solutions, but they require support from people to make the solutions work. What I'm afraid of is demoralization of our people when they cave in and become victims. Okay. So, Harley. Well, look, I think the, the most important thing is this idea of being courageous and thoughtful. You know, if, if people who don't really spend time studying Lyndon LaRouche have very mixed views of him, largely shaped by a media which had a narrative that LaRouche must never be allowed to reach the American people. And so he was called every name. He was a victim of a persecution, as former Attorney General Ramsey Clark pointed out, uh, the, the worst prosecutorial case against him that, to his knowledge, was what was run against LaRouche. And the, the idea was that if you want to contain the anger in the population, and there's a lot of anger, legitimate anger, genuine anger. We saw it in the 2016 election. We've seen it erupting over and over, not just in the United States, but throughout the whole Western world anger, but what's done is that the narratives are presented to essentially divide people against each other. It's a kind of like geopolitics on a national political level. How do you create maximum diversion, disruption, and confusion? And that's what breeds demoralization. And Lynn made this point at the end there about he's seen people who had an opportunity to do something and didn't. And, uh, you know, I sometimes hesitate to bring this up, but I think it must be said, we had an opportunity that the whole Russiagate scandal could have been used in conjunction with what Mike's been reporting about the BBC and British intelligence. The whole ball of wax was right there to be melted. The connections between GCHQ, MI6, CIA, FBI, all run under the umbrella of the city of London and Wall Street, it could have been defeated during the Trump administration, and it wasn't. Now, people can say all they want, and this is where I think the, the whole QAnon movement comes in, to convince people, oh, don't worry, there are good guys out there who are going to take care of it. There aren't good guys out there to take care of it. It's up to us. It's up to us to be courageous and thoughtful. Know the enemy, and when you have the opportunity, you punch to the back of the head, as Lynn always said. And we still have that opportunity. We have that opportunity because there are other countries that are not submitting any longer to the city of London. That's why you saw the failure of the COP26. 
That's why you see the resistance to the Great Reset. That's why you see Russia and China voting together to defeat a UN Security Council resolution to set up a global climate police. We have the opportunity now because other countries are in motion. They want the same things that most Americans want. They want an ability to live a better life and, and leave something better for their children and grandchildren. And to do that, we have to go with the program that Lynn has outlined to allow each sovereign nation to develop its capabilities through a credit system and an emphasis on science and technology and culture. And that's what we should be supporting instead of looking for who to blame, who doesn't agree with us on all these key points. We have common interests, and that's the where the, the real thoughtfulness comes in, is to find how to communicate on the basis of those common interests. Hopefully, there'll be some of that that will be expressed in these upcoming meetings between Russia, the United States, NATO, and others. Hopefully, there'll be someone on the transatlantic side that isn't just going there to try and, and uh, beat up on Putin and the Russians, but will recognize that most of the fault for the crisis rests with the adoption of the West of this British system. So I, I think I'll just leave it at that. Okay, well, uh, I'll just uh, say uh, both Happy New Year to everybody uh, and also just point out that uh, I think we're going to be hearing more from uh, Mike and uh, also from you, Harley, a lot more in the next days. Obviously, we're looking at a very important week coming up here in, in the news, but I think these developments happening in England are extremely important for us to monitor. Um, so I want to thank you both for being with us today uh, for this. And we're just going to close uh, with a segment that we featured uh, last week, actually, uh, from, again, Lyndon LaRouche from 2013. We do want to say that on this idea of the year of Lyndon LaRouche, you're going to be hearing a lot more, and we'll be putting a lot more up on our website, documents, uh, video, um, perhaps some audio tracks as well uh, from Lynn, a concept being that we are going to try to at least make what he, what he represented available. Just to be clear, what former uh, U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark stated about the Lynn and LaRouche case, uh, this was in 1993, stated it. Uh, that the LaRouche case represented, quote, a broader range of deliberate and systematic misconduct and abuse of power over a longer period of time in an effort to destroy a political movement and leader than any other federal prosecution in my time or to my knowledge. That's a direct quote. Mr. Clark uh, passed away last year. Uh, we always pay our respects to him and we pay our respect to him, particularly because of his very courageous and truthful statement concerning uh, the question of LaRouche, which was a precedent to things like what we're talking about with Snowden and Assange. Uh, so we want to thank everybody for being with us. And again, this is the um, a clip we opened with actually last week. Uh, uh, but it, it, we, uh, by request, want to show this as we conclude today. And we'll see you here again next week. We have a new opportunity, which we have to seize. There are opportunities involving other nations, major nations, Russia, China, India, so forth, uh, and that sort of thing. But there are also the things that we could do. We are on the verge of the capability, with certain changes in our political structure right now, to launch a thermonuclear fusion program, which would change 
the surface of this earth and beyond. That it will take us probably a dozen years or so to get a thermonuclear fusion program going on. But as we know in many of these processes in the past, that when you get something started and you keep it going, it's far different than waiting for the opportunity to bring it on. So what we have to do now is commit ourselves to bringing on what must be brought on in terms of such things as thermonuclear fusion. With, with the opportunity to describe it summarily, is we can use the uh, technologies at our beck. We can use these technologies in such a way as to create a new system of economy. And it's time to do that. If we get rid of some of the problems we have, we typified by Obama, but also people been, who weren't before him. In that case, we have a new opening for the United States, not just the United States, but the world. Now, what I'm working on is the fact that what we need is to combine the idea of a water system for the United States, particularly from the Mississippi River on westward, but actually carrying that through thermonuclear fusion, to carrying that across the Pacific Ocean into Asia itself. And this kind of program, within a dozen years, could be, re could be realized. And this kind of action, this kind of volitional action, is exactly what we need. And I, I say that the evidence is that the solution is possible and it's highly recommended. We can get out of the, you know, the doghouse that we've been living in for too long. We can realize that we have the ability in co coordinated efforts to bring on that change, to establish the basis for a thermonuclear uh, fusion program which is the solution for the entire Pacific region, it's a solution for all the United States west of the Mississippi River, and similarly. And these things are there for us. But the key thing is you have to understand that those potentials exist. Because, only, because it's only through our concerted efforts that what is potential can be made real. And that's my essential message. If you have any questions, I'd be glad to answer them.